What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It's Friday, April 29th, 2022, and I am your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how goes it? Betty, it is going super well over here. I just splashed a bunch of cold water on my face to get me up on this beautiful Friday, and I'm ready to rip now. I'm good to You're go. You're up and at them? I'm up and at them. I am all of the idioms that means <laughs> being and becoming awake. Ditto. If uh, if it's a cliche that means I'm ready to podcast, then uh, yeah, that's it. That's it for both of us. Exactly. <laughs> all right, let's do this thing. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, let's get into our quick hits for the week. So our first one is by Helen Briggs, who writes, climate change and farming driving insect decline for the BBC. That decline is as much as 50% in some parts of the world, according to researchers from the UK, who added, we need to acknowledge the threats that we pose to insects before some species are lost forever. Lead researcher Dr. Charlie Outhwaite of UCL said, losing insect populations could be harmful not only to the natural environment, but to human health and food security, particularly with losses of pollinators. She added that our findings highlight the urgency of actions to preserve natural habitats, slow the expansion of high-intensity agriculture, and cut emissions to mitigate climate change. In areas where climate change is causing substantial temperature increases and areas with high-intensity agriculture, the number of individual insects have dropped by 49%, and the number of species present have dropped by 27%. Some of the potential solutions that researchers discuss in the study include avoiding intensive agriculture, planting a wide range of crops, and preserving natural habitat near farmland. So, Nick, this reminded me a lot of the documentary we watched that started this month. Um, I believe it was Kiss the Earth or something like that. Kiss the Ground. Yeah, yeah. Kiss the Ground. That's right. Um, Yeah, it reminded me of that, how they talked about, you know, intense agriculture, pesticide use, erosion of soils. It's all contributing to things that are having not just an impact on our food, but also the natural ecosystems that are supporting and are supported by that ground. And in this case, we're looking at intense agriculture and increasing temperatures leading to the insects not being able to thrive the way they once could. Yeah, definitely. And like, it also reminds me of the, um, I don't know what the documentary was called. We also watched it, but it was like big little farm or something like that. And it was just talking about how like every animal and every like species has its purpose. And like insects are those things that you just like, you're like, I want to kill. Some people are like this. I'm one of these people. (laughs) I'm like, I need to kill every insect that is near me. And I know that's like a terrible way to to think about it, but like, that's just who I am. It's ingrained in who I am. Um, (laughs) But they really do play a massive part in like the overall global health of the climate. Yeah, I mean, they're the base of all food chains. 
they, you know, they also help decompose animals, plants that have died and then they make the soil healthier. So yeah, they're, they're really, really important. And I'm not talking to you, mosquitoes, mosquitoes suck, but (laughs) (laughs) the rest of the insects really, really useful. And, and especially pollinators, which is something that they talk about in this article. So some ways to help out pollinators, if you as a listener are thinking, you know, I love butterflies, I love bumblebees, I love birds that pollinate and I want to help. Um, one thing you could do is plant trees because insects need shade in the summer. So plant trees if you can, if you have the space for it. Another thing you could do is establish a no mow zone, which is just something where exactly like it sounds, you don't mow your lawn. So the native species, whether it's plants, insects, animals can kind of thrive in that area. And a third thing you could do for all my gardeners out there, you can build a pollinator garden, which is just something where you plant species of flowers where you know bumblebees and hummingbirds and butterflies are going to come in and they're going to help pollinate those flowers and then transfer that all throughout not just your pollinator garden but the local plants nearby so pollinator gardens are awesome double thumbs up big endorsement from the planet today huge pollinator gardens guys we're going to probably start like if we if this podcast gets really big we're going to start a pollinator garden we just have to like a community pollinator garden Maybe in Central Park. I don't know if that's possible. We'll, we'll figure it out. There is a community garden very close to my apartment. Uh, so yes, if things take off, maybe we could build a little pollinator garden there. There we go. Done. The Planet Today Community Garden Pollinator Garden. Love it. All right, let's move on to our next one. So it is titled, Don't Look Down. Does that sound familiar? As <laughs> permafrost thaws, the ground beneath Alaska is collapsing by Lois Partially of Grist. All right. As usual with Grist, this is a longer article that we can't dive into fully on the show just for time restraints, but definitely check it out if it interests you. So it talks about Goldstream Valley, which is near Fairbanks, Alaska, and it's the birthplace of American permafrost research. The article actually states that the temperature in Fairbanks has changed so much in the past 50 years that scientists removed the subarctic designation for the city last year. Fairbanks is now considered a warm summer continental area as the ice that once covered roughly 85% of Alaska is thawing. This article interviews Kathy Leniger, who lives in Goldstream Valley, and she said that she built her cabin several decades ago, and now every few years she has to jack up her foundation because as permafrost thaws, her house sinks. The article dives into the science of studying the sinking and they discuss how an underground river has even formed under Leniger's cabin. But unfortunately, her story is not unique. There's no detailed map of permafrost locations, so potential homebuyers are left just basically guessing about whether or not their land is structurally sound. This problem is only getting worse because the Arctic gets wetter as it gets warmer. Rainfall and snowmelt help to thaw permafrost quicker, so Fairbanks is seeing one centimeter of thawing permafrost for every one centimeter of rainfall it gets. Yeah, so it's basically just doubling it, which is wild. And then making matters worse, Fairbanks now has five more weeks of rain than it did in the 1970s. So much of the permafrost in Alaska is tens to hundreds of thousands of years old, And we're seeing that begin to thaw much quicker than it initially froze. Permafrost thawing was thought to happen over tens of thousands of years. 
at a scale that, you know, it, it takes so long that it's very incremental and you don't really have to worry about it. But now the rapid rate of thawing is very, very alarming. Yeah. And it's also not just Fairbanks. 89 of Alaska's 336 communities are threatened by permafrost degradation. The authors also highlighted how there's not much state or federal funding to deal with permafrost and that the federal government isn't really prepared for how much of a threat permafrost thawing will be to these communities. So one of the people interviewed for this article mentioned how the lack of federal preparedness makes it hard for Alaskans to plan for an emergency they're already facing. The man in the article basically said that if Alaskans knew how much funding they would receive to rebuild and restore, they would know whether it's better to do that or to just relocate altogether. Yeah, and part of the issue is also that scientists aren't sure how much ice there is and how many people are living on it. And it seems like it's a tough field to study. And without that data, it's hard to make any sort of concrete plans. So scientists have conducted studies to estimate the amount of carbon and methane in permafrost. And it's a lot. There are currently 1.6 trillion metric tons of carbon stored in permafrost, which is double what's currently in the atmosphere. New projections suggest that the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from permafrost could equal those emitted from the rest of the United States by the end of the century. So again, thawing is a really big deal for climate change. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about like erasing basically any progress that we make in the next, let's say 10 to 15 years, if the, if permafrost continues to thaw, like, of course it's holding that much carbon. It's been on this earth for literally tens to hundreds of thousands of years old. Like, yeah. And all throughout that time, you know, you have plants that are decaying, you have animals that are decaying and all of that carbon, instead of getting released into the atmosphere, it just gets frozen in the permafrost Mm -hmm. and something that they mentioned in the article, that's probably just worth touching on for a second here, it's called permafrost because it was thought to be so cold and so frozen over the last hundred thousand years that it was just going to basically stay frozen forever. Or like we said, start to thaw over tens of thousands of years where like you barely notice it. So for all of that to get undone, yeah, there's going to be a lot of carbon that's basically just emitted. So here's where the whole carbon capture thing comes in. I don't think carbon capture is this silver bullet that's going to solve climate change, but I think it's a really important piece of the puzzle for things like this. We do still need to decrease our emissions, but even if we decrease all of our emissions, the temperature is still going to continue to rise because of carbon that's in the atmosphere. So being able to capture that and then being able to capture the carbon that's emitted from this permafrost thawing, that's a huge piece that really, really could be crucial here. Yeah, I mean, we could we could really be like I just said, we could be erasing the progress that we're we're fighting so hard for if if the thawing continues. Yeah, definitely, definitely a scary situation. And I just want to close this one out by explaining why permafrost thawing is such a big issue as quickly as possible. So if you only take one thing away from this segment, this should be it. As permafrost thaws, the carbon stored in it will begin to decay and release into the atmosphere. So we're looking at carbon emissions causing permafrost to thaw, which causes more carbon emissions, which is going to cause more permafrost to thaw, which will cause more carbon emissions. So it's this brutal cycle. And like we said at the top of this segment, this is 
a much longer article and we left out quite a few anecdotal stories from people living through this exact scenario. So if, if any of this interested you or piqued your interest at all, go check out the article in your show notes. It's a long one, but it's really, really well done. Really interesting. Yes, definitely be sure to check that out. All right. So our next story is from The Independent, where Bevan Hurley writes, Win Alan Bruce, climate activist dies after setting himself on fire outside Supreme Court on Earth Day. Yeah, not a ton to add here. We just felt like this was worth bringing up because initially it wasn't really getting reported by a lot of major outlets. Um, Wynn was a devout Buddhist and photojournalist from Colorado, and he decided to set himself on fire on the steps of the Supreme Court a week ago today, and he died the following day. He started writing about the exact day that he would die on Facebook almost a year ago, and in those posts, he mentioned a free climate course hosted by Dr. Michael Mann, who we've spoken about on the show before. So we're going to link that in your show notes in Bruce's memory. Yeah, this is a brutal one. I mean, it it shows you how much people care about this issue and like how strongly they are passionate for it and will do anything to fight for it to the point of literally setting himself on fire. It's crazy. Yeah, it's definitely sad in that a life was lost, but I know that in in some ways of life or religions and you know Buddhism being one of them, an act of martyrdom like this is the ultimate selfless act. So this isn't meant to inspire people to go out and, and also set yourself on fire. This is meant to inspire people to go out and make sure that the planet doesn't slowly burn the way that he did. So it reminds me of... An, Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the name, but the Buddhist monk Tishuan Duc, who set himself on fire in Vietnam in 1963 to protest the Vietnamese government's oppression of Buddhism. And it's a really iconic picture where he just maintained his meditative pose as his body was burning. So I'm sure people are familiar with that picture. If not, um, I'm not going to say go check it out, but it's an iconic protesting photo. And I think this was uh, this was another one of those iconic protests where I hope that it opened up some eyes and some ears to the reality of what's going on on this planet. Yeah, 100 percent. All right. We're going to be back after the break with two happier stories for you. We promise. Planet Today is brought to you by Flonase. Oh, sorry, just kidding. Vala Alta. No free ads for Flonase, which Nick and I are definitely not using because they don't sponsor the show. <laughs> we are, however, using our Vala Alta Everyday Handkerchief, which is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT.
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, ecological concrete to reduce the impact of offshore wind energy infrastructures by Robin Whitlock of Renewable Energy News. I love this. It's so, so cool to me. So <laughs> it's E-C-O, it's like e-concrete, e-concrete. I don't know. It's, it's <laughs> e-concrete, but E-C-O is capitalized. We're going to call it e-concrete because that's the easiest to say. Anyway, it's a material that encourages local organisms to settle on its surface and can be used at ports, docks, underwater cable protection, and wind turbines. Not only is it environmentally friendly, but it reinforces and protects the structures that it's used on. So using environmentally friendly materials in construction is a way to help decarbonize the construction sector and in turn reduce the effects of climate change. In this case, E-concrete has science-based complex surface textures that kind of just mimic the natural environment, which encourages those local organisms to settle on them. Yeah, so E-concrete is already used in 40 locations across 10 countries. The coastal protection units used at the Port of San Diego in the United States are covered by a biodiverse ecosystem. It has boosted the local ecosystem so much that predators such as lobsters and octopi have returned. Crabs can also be seen in the coastal protections of Brooklyn Bridge Park in New York. And algae and fish have found refuge in the Port de Fontevielle, Monaco, and in the Port of Rotterdam in the Netherlands, according to Econcrete. So we're talking about the animals that should be found in these areas coming home, which is great. So Econcrete also promotes the growth of algae, mollusks, tube worms, and similar organisms that form active carbon sinks. Over the 50 to 100 years that e-concrete is used, those carbon sinks will absorb CO2 all throughout their lifespans. Yeah, this is such an awesome idea. And like, I, I would never think that concrete is something that could be like maneuvered in such a way to be to replicate real coral or, you know, like real habitat for these for these fish and, and other species it's so cool that they were able to do that mm -hmm. um and it's basically like the the surface texture that's really what like they worked on in order to make it to make the species really want to get on it and get working yeah it's it's really innovative and and it's so cool to me when you see something that's environmentally friendly but also just works better i mean the the usual trade-off is hey, I care about the environment, so I'm going to sacrifice this thing that I normally use in order to use this. This kind of seems like a no-brainer because you're talking about it's environmentally friendly. It also reinforces the products that it's used on. And just how prevalent are those products? I mean, the things we're talking about here are ports, docks. Like Those are pretty much every single coast there's going to be at least like one port one dock yeah even on small lakes there's docks so granted the small lakes probably aren't using reinforced concrete but still i mean just think about the scale of how many ports and docks there are then we talk about underwater cable protection um if you're listening to this you probably benefit from the internet which is just a series of cables underwater that go across the oceans like it's wild just how big and thick underwater cables are so to be able to use something like this where it's environmentally friendly and could help the organisms on that seafloor that's great and the other thing we mentioned was offshore wind wind turbines which oh i don't know every single country that cares about climate change has 
offshore wind in their <laughs> uh, in their portfolio for what they want to get moving on. So yeah, yeah, it's it's great. This is something that could have a really big impact on way more things than we realize. So it's great. And then the other thing we mentioned was reinforcing seawalls. So look, I mean the effects of climate change are going to include sea level rise. So it's not just important to use something like e-concrete, which is going to lower the emissions and create an area that has a carbon sink. It's also important that this is going to help adapt. And this is going to help basically reinforce those seawalls as the sea level rises and starts to erode them more. So you have basically just all sides of this coin being fixed by, by this one Item. And this isn't meant to be an e-concrete ad. This is more <laughs> of like, there are other items out there that do the same thing, which is really, really exciting and something that gives me hope for, you know, fighting climate change. Yeah. I think you summed it up really well when you said it's a no brainer. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It, it's a no brainer. This is good in, in every direction. Yeah. I did the classic podcast thing, which is this is a no brainer that needs no explanation. And then I explained it for four minutes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's what gives people context. It, it makes them understand it a much more deeper understanding, Matt. And that for that, we thank you. I am long winded, which helps with wind energy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to our last quick hit of the week. And it's from NPR where Dustin Jones writes, for the first time in four years, a litter of red wolf pups was born in the wild. Love this story too. So six red wolf pups were born in North Carolina last week, as reported by staff from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Four females and two males were born, which is huge news for a species that is close to extinction. Red wolves used to live throughout North America, from Florida to the Great Plains and the Ohio River Valley, but hunting, extermination, and human expansion have greatly decreased the species' numbers. In 1973, when the Endangered Species Act was passed, there were only 17 wolves left in the U.S. 14 of those wolves were captured and transferred to captivity, and the species was declared extinct in the wild in the 1980s. For someone who hasn't heard that phrase, it's a conservation classification that basically just means they're around in zoos, they're around in preserves, and they're part of these species survival plans to basically keep the species alive and reproducing. But there's none in the wild because, frankly, they can't survive in the wild yet. So four years after the species were brought into captivity, there were 63 healthy red wolves from the 14 that were transferred. More than 60 red wolves were later released between 1987 and 1994, which soon began forming packs and breeding. As of 2012, red wolf numbers reached a peak of 120 before, again, human activity caused their population to decline. The article says that conservationists came to the wolves' aid once again in 2012, after one red wolf after another was shot and killed, having been mistaken for a coyote. The North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission had recently approved a temporary rule allowing hunters to kill coyotes, which occasionally breed with the wolves, at night in the area where the red wolf was trying to make a comeback. Yeah, so by the time the NCWRC and environmentalists agreed to a settlement, there were only 100 red wolves in the wild. The group agreed to ban spotlight hunting at night, because anyone who's been out at night knows it's harder to see, even with a good flashlight. 
and a permit was required to hunt coyotes. But red wolf numbers still declined to between 17 to 20 as of 2021. So we're talking about 120 nine years ago to 17 last year. So yeah, it, it was it was not really working even with the permits. So as of today, there are an estimated 15 to 17 red wolves in the wild with 241 living in captivity. As mentioned in this headline, this was the first wild birth of red wolves since 2018. Well, hopefully this is the start of something better and hopefully we can really bump up that that 241 number. Um, love to see the red wolf population coming back. Also, for the folks at home who don't have like pictures in front of them, they're actually not red. They're just like a classic looking wolf, but they are very cool looking. Yeah, Nick is 100% correct there. They're like a brownish color, like a light brown, but sometimes they get a reddish tint on their muzzle or behind their ears. So that's why they were named Red Wolves. And yeah, hopefully this is a, the start of a, another big comeback. So 241 living in captivity, that's enough to create a substantial population. And hopefully with release programs and the 15 to 17 that are in the wild, the wild numbers could also get back up to where they were a couple years ago. Yeah, definitely. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We're going to be back on Monday for our first episode of May. Um, There's going to be no documentary review next month, and we'll see if we revisit those in the future. But for now, they are canceled. We have something new and we have something special that is planned for you, our listeners. Yes. So it's our first Monday mini-sode, which is a shorter episode with maybe one or two quick hits in 10 minutes or less. Yeah, it's going to be a great episode to share with your friends, and we're going to do at least one of those per month. So after you listen, you're like, wow, that was a great show. I can't wait to share that with my friends. Do it because it's going to be short, not intimidating, and you know, 10 minutes or less. They could definitely check it out. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and a review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. And follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We're produced every week by Nick Janusa, who also does our music. Nick, where can people keep up with you? You can find me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace.